0: There was this line from back when Trump was president, which I think is quite prescient today, where uh, people would say that Trump was taken literally, but not seriously, whereas people take Xi seriously, but not literally. So if you actually take what uh, Xi Jinping says literally, you know, actually listen to what he says, uh, it's really quite alarming some of the things that he does say about what China's role is in the world, what his, uh, what his uh, ambitions are for China.
1: Welcome to the Exponential Investor podcast. Want to be a
0: better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the mega trends and opportunities reshaping our world.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Uh, I'm Kit Winder, and today I'm joined by Boaz Shoshan in Sam Volkring's absence. Boaz, how are you doing? I'm very well, Kit. How are you getting on today? Yeah, very well. Thanks. Thanks for joining us uh, this week. Now, Burrs, it's a treat to have you on the podcast, uh, and you're something of an, you know, an expert in the South Bank ranks on sort of, I guess, U.S.-China relations. And you were very early on a lot of the um, the anti-China sentiment that is now becoming more mainstream. But I had a question that I wanted to put to you, um, which is that China seems to be on a an unstoppable rise. It's been doing so for a couple of decades. It's gained huge control over uh, critical industries and resources. And America, to be perfectly honest, is is struggling in lots of ways. Uh, it's politically polarized. The you know the gap between rich and poor seems to be widening. A lot of the policies around uh, you know wealth creation and taxes are coming under huge scrutiny. And you know it's a country that seems to be struggling. It doesn't have huge control of its own supply chain. Uh, militarily, it's starting to struggle relative to other world powers. So it's, it seems as if we're moving to a, a multipolar world where China and America share the limelight. So, is it sensible that America is taking this more aggressive anti China stance? Or, in the sort of world of soft power and, uh, and uh, I guess cooperation, would it not be wiser? To uh, cling aggressively to a model of friendship in the future, despite China's many transgressions. Hmm. Well, I must say that's quite quite the
0: question to be starting with, Kit, and uh, a very flattering introduction. I, I wouldn't call myself an expert on U.S.-China relations, though I have managed to call a few uh, a few of the moves on the chessboard uh, quite well so far. It's a very big question that you ask, uh, and I think to a large degree, a lot of people do agree with that route. You know, uh, there are a lot of people, especially when it comes to corporate America, they want to, they want to, <laughs> they want to, uh, you know, tell you this tale of you know, we need to be close. It needs to be a close relationship with China. China sort of appeasement policy, or what well, some, you know, if you're on the more hawkish side, they'd call it a frenemies policy, where we still need economic integration with China. But, you know, we can try and we can try and maneuver around them with various uh, military means, strategic means, and of course, you know, America still has sort of financial dominance over China. Um, I don't think Uh, Well, I don't think on a military level uh, the U.S. and China are by any means equal yet. It's a very long way away. China does not have a blue water navy. They are certainly building an awful lot of ships all of the time uh, at a quite alarming rate. When it comes to uh, actually being able to operate anywhere in the world's oceans, uh, and being able to, uh, you know, to to funnel the logistics that, re- you know, that uh, having a Blue Water Navy requires, which we have in this country, uh, and which the Americans do, and a, a couple other nations do as well. Uh, China is a, is a long way away from that. So I don't think uh, military parity is, uh, we're close to it yet, though, of course, China is aiming to get there. Uh, and they are, they've made that really quite, they've, they've been very vocal about that. They've been very open about it. Just nobody wants to, uh, nobody wants to take it. Nobody wants to take it seriously. There was this line from back when Trump was president, which I think is quite prescient today, where uh, people would say that Trump was taken literally, but not seriously, whereas people take Xi seriously, but not literally. So if you actually take what uh, Xi Jinping says literally, you know, actually listen to what he says, uh, it's really quite alarming some of the things that he does say about what China's role is in the world, what his... Uh, what his uh, ambitions are for China. And of course, he is uh, still very, very strong within China in general. There's a lot of, uh, it's, there's an interesting debate as to whether or not, um, you know, Xi Jinping has the unparalleled power through the party that he it, you know, the image is projected, or whether or not there's actually a lot of internal power struggles that he needs to, you know, keep, uh, keep, uh, in play at the same time, and whether or not uh, there may be a time when he would be betrayed by somebody or something like that. But ultimately, you know, you need to be a proper China hand to understand all of these things, and, and that is something I am not. But when it comes to military parity, I think the US is still very much in the lead. There's a lot of this, uh, a lot of things going on there with hypersonic missiles, uh, with these uh, these lot la- the launches of various Chinese t- uh, missile tests. Uh, but I do think that the US is still very much ahead of the game when it comes to that. I think that's quite key when it comes to whether or not uh, a superpower needs to bend the knee towards a rising power.
1: OK, um, but in general, what we've seen over the last year is is a trend towards more, I guess, antagonistic policy moves by America, both Trump and Biden, and a sort of wider support for those within the public and the, the rank and file of the American politicians. And to an extent in the UK as well, maybe slightly less so in Europe. Um, but do you think this is a wise move, given the trend that China is on? Hmm. It's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it is a very good question. Is this really a wise move? I guess it
0: depends how you define wise. Uh, and I guess it depends on, uh, I guess, I, to me, it comes down to, to a question of morality, ultimately, which is, if you let China do whatever it wants, I mean, it's it's showing you what it's doing, whatever it what it does when it does whatever it wants. Uh, we're in Xinjiang, right? So this is uh it's quite clear what's going on there. Uh we've known this for a long time and uh, nobody really wants to say anything about it. Uh so I think there's actually there's a sort of a moral element that you do need to stand up to China in a lot of ways. Uh, and that, you know, you do need to have a an aggressive policy that is deterrent in its uh in its in its consequences ultimately. So I think you, you know you know the idea that you just need to respect power because power is there uh, is not something I really agree with. Uh, it's very much an appeasement mindset. This is the kind of thing that people you know uh, and this is a cliche now. This is the kind of thing that people were saying in the nineteen thirties, right? You know we need you know well, yeah Germany you know there's yeah there's some things we disagree with, but no no you know, you know we don't want war. You know remember that remember that massive conflict we had etc etc. So uh, I think it I think it's great that there is actually much more antagonism uh, here because. Uh, there's a saying from uh, Richard Nixon, which I think is very prescient here, where he uh, wrote that he agreed that the Chinese Communist Party uh, took the Leninist doctrine that you must probe with bayonets, and if you encounter mush, you proceed, and if you encounter steel, you withdraw. Uh, this is referring to you know how you how you treat your your uh, your enemies ultimately. So if you uh, you know if you if you encounter weakness, you encounter softness, you encounter. Uh, sort of appeasing policies. Well, you should just make the most of it and keep going and going and going until somebody actually tells you to stop. Uh, and if you look at what how the CCP have managed to uh, you know uh, uh, treat and uh, roll over all of these European politicians who may have an issue with things like human rights, uh, you know they've, they've been incredibly effective at doing that. So all that's happened is we've uh, we've just said yeah you guys can do whatever you want and we're going to open our markets to you and you can take our uh, you know our industrial bases ultimately. Uh, and you can we'll, we'll all make money together, and we won't say anything bad about you guys because uh, you know you guys are going to become liberal and democratic at some point in the future, uh, and yeah, you know, we'll just keep repeating that to all the people who maybe have a have a problem with it. Uh, so you know, try, probe with bayonets has been incredibly successful, and ultimately needs steel to stop that. That's the only thing that will cause that withdrawal that Nixon uh, referred to. Uh, and Nixon knew an awful lot about the uh, about the Chinese Communist Party as he's the one who sort of started off the entire you know, Western re-engagement with China once again. So in answer to your question, Kit, I would say that I'm very happy that some steel is being offered to the Chinese Communist Party rather than mush.
1: Okay, so yeah, all excellent points. And you raise, of course, the very important issue of what's happening in Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghur population there. And I, I guess I have two points on this. Firstly, um, that I would love it if we offered, you know, a lot more steel with regards to that one issue. Um, but I'm not sure if it's entirely correct to say that because of, you know, the, the antagonistic policies we're seeing are entirely related to Xinjiang or that we are seeing a sort of international community awakening um, on that front. And so I, I guess I'm questioning to what extent that is the cause behind everything that we're seeing. Um and I, I Well, so I I'll, I'll interject there, actually, kid because I I, th- I understand what you say, though
0: I would say that what is going on in Xinjiang is a is a as a facet of the Chinese Communist Party in that it is showing you um it is showing you the kind of beliefs that they that they have and that they're willing to impose, uh, and it shows you their character. So ultimately, while you know what's going on in Xinjiang is not uh entirely of course that's not entirely the reason why the US military is now incredibly uh, you know, afraid of losing all of these supply chains to China, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, that's been going on. I mean, they've been worried about that for a very long time. But uh, when it ca- it's showing you the character of the Chinese Communist Party, and this is certainly helping the international community recognize uh, what that character is and why they should be more afraid of it. So it's just showing you a you know a shade of it. It's not the it's not that this is this one event is the reason why all of this is happening. It was the same with which it was the same with, you know, uh, again, to use the cliche. it was the same with the with the Nazis back in uh, 1930s, right? the uh, the whole eugenics thing that they had going on, whole racial purity. that was not the that was not the reason why everybody was getting worried about them, right? It was because they were this huge economy that was really aggressive, really expansive. Uh, and very militaristic. And so here we are today, and uh, we see something similar. Uh, what goes on in Xinjiang, I think, it just just reveals the character uh, of what the CCP is, and that's why one of the reasons why people should be worried about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the question I asked at the outset um, was directing us to this debate, which is around the intentions of the Chinese Communist Party and how aggressive they are and how far they stretch. Uh, and you talk about the things that Xi Jinping has said. How do you read the sort of... the I guess what the Chinese would view as the um, it's not, I guess, a rise to power. It's a, uh, a second coming, you know, they feel as though they have been a global power for thousands of years. And all that's happened over the last couple of years is a sort of brief hiatus uh, or hiatus. Um, do you feel that they have incredibly serious sort of global domination Uh ideals that they're working towards over the, the coming decades, where they really want to overtake America, be the sole global power? Do you think that they are going to be content with a, with a multipolar world? Yeah, I, again, it's another good question. It's a very big question.
0: It's probably probably above my pay grade, really. But I would say that I think it's a bit of yes and no. The whole manifest destiny thing, this sort of once and future power. Uh, I, I, I've no doubt that uh, China could be a huge superpower. And in many ways, it is a superpower already. Right. But uh, when it comes to this idea that, well, we were really big in the past, uh, like China's GDP used to dwarf everybody else's many, 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 many years ago. Uh, and they've got this mythos uh, of, you know, how this is sort of the, you know, the rightful return of the Han. Uh, and, you know, we've got the, uh, you know, this is the the return, the, the ascension of the Han Chinese, all, all this stuff, which, um, yeah, which I, I which in a lot of ways, yeah again again has has it has echoes of things that are not very nice but i think the uh, the idea that simply because it was once a huge economy. It does not necessarily mean it's destined to become that again. It obviously is a huge economy now, uh, but the I'm I'm always a bit dubious about this whole you know the you know China's a hundred year marathon and things like this. There's this uh, here in the West we have this idea that uh, China's is run by these mandarins who you know understand everybody and they're always playing the long game, right? These guys know you know how to uh, you know how to play the long day. Here in the West, we're just obsessed with the next election. All of our domestic, industrial, and economic policies are always just being run by politicians who can only think four years ahead. And as a result, over here in this autocracy, right, this uh, dictatorship, they can make the plans that last the test of time. Uh, and this is, you know, it's a very, it's a very persuasive, compelling narrative, right? But the way, when you look at things like the one child policy, uh, and then you look at things like the actual health, of their, of their agricultural land uh, now that they've, uh, they've, you know, they've really, really treated it very poorly because they're, uh, they're uh, going for these uh, really high GDP measures. So they've just nuked the soil with all these chemicals and, uh, it, they, you know, the, the, the land is nearly as fertile as it used to be it makes me wonder as to whether or not this is part of the mythos of China, whether or not it's really true, whether it actually reflects the reality uh, of China today. Uh, and the problem is, I'm never going to be able to go to China because of all the bad things I've said
1: about China. So uh, I'm never going to be able to find out for myself. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, the argument that politicians there are just as bad as they are here is probably equally compelling. Um, moving on, then, if it's, if it's not going to be the Asian century, if that uh, narrative has been Perhaps overstated. Uh, I guess one of the most immediate threats to China's short term uh, ambitions is probably still what's happening in their property market, uh, which started with the news of Evergrande, which managed to, uh, I guess, affect investors' perceptions of the future returns on equities for about a day uh, and seems to have gone away pretty swiftly since. But there have been a number of other bankruptcies and missed bond payments from other companies from other property companies in the sector since then it's a you know some people would call it a bubble that's been building for a decade or more uh, it's heavily indebted it's facing onerous regulation property sales are falling rapidly um just in the last month or two and i uh, i was wondering how how seriously do you think people are taking this threat and do you think they're taking it seriously enough well, I would add a caveat to uh, that, that sentence. You started that question with, Kit. I think uh, I'm not
0: saying that we're not going to see an Asian century. There is a lot more in Asia than just China. Uh, and I think, uh, for for example, India, I'm actually incredibly bullish on India over the long term. Uh, which has plenty of its own issues, but not none. Uh, well, not none, but uh, not quite the same as China's. So I do. Uh, I think Asia is a very interesting place to be an investor. I do think there is uh, a huge amount of economic prosperity that's going to be unlocked there in the fullness of time. And of course, they have much better demographics than us over in the West, uh, which is always going to which is always going to be a help, especially in places like India. But uh, to answer your question regarding Evergrande, you know the uh, the Starbucks latte size that everybody got really, really afraid of for <laughs> a uh, for a short period. Period of time now suddenly nobody seems to care about it anymore it is quite remarkable uh, I think you know it's that gray Rhino risk uh, ever, you know people have been worried about Evergrande for a long time and then you know when people are when suddenly when it, feels, it seems like things might actually go wrong uh, people stop caring about it which is quite interesting it's almost this thing with uh, it's almost a bit like you know how your imagination is always worse than the reality like people's fear of an Evergrande default uh, is greater than the default, but you know whether or not it is. You know it is actually going to default in a big way. We've yet to really see. Uh, I think you know people are looking at the the bond coupon payments, whether or not they missed that. It's not the you know when. We're kind of waiting for something like an outright, a really big outright default on something before things get get wrong. And of course, everyone's attention span these days is, you know, like that of a gnat. So uh people get distracted very quickly and they don't pay, you know, they're not keeping their eyes on the ball. I think one thing with Evergrande is uh again, it, it fits back into the Chinese commerce party and what they want. So whatever happens with Evergrande is going to be. Uh, is a function is a function of political economy to use a to use a nine dollar phrase uh, where effectively whatever happens is probably what the CCP wants to happen. If they want it to default, then they will they'll let it. And if they don't, they'll find a way of patching it over. Uh, one thing that the CCP have been incredibly good at is stoking private credit, which is something we're very bad at here in uh, here in the UK and here in uh, the the you know the the developed markets where they're very good at, you know, actually influencing people's desire and demand for credit because you need private credit growth to really drive your economy. So, you know, you need businesses taking out loans. I mean, that'd be the biggest one uh, in order to get your economy going. China's managed to do that. There's obviously excesses, which you see in the likes of the property market, where people are just getting out loans to, uh, you know, build Build houses to the in the middle of nowhere, which no one's ever going to live in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think China is going to find a way of keeping that private credit engine going, one way or another, in order to keep their GDP figures higher. Uh, maybe that'll slow down a bit, but I don't think it's gonna it's going to really uh, taper off in any meaningful way anytime soon. So uh, I think the Evergrande spectacle. Uh, I actually think it they're probably going to find a way of keeping it alive. I think it's going to remain a grey rhino risk and. Uh, if ever it suddenly charges onto the scene and gores loads of investors, uh, it'll probably be because the CCP wanted it to.
1: Very interesting. Well, Buzz, it's been a great conversation as it always is with you on the podcast. Thanks for for coming on again. Uh, Next week, uh, Sam will be off again. So either Buzz will be back or we'll find a different guest for you. Um, But until then, thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it and bye for now.